Thank you, Father, for the wonderful weekend, the good weather, family, friends, food, the chance to be reminded of all that we are thankful for. And thank you, Father, that we can come into this building so commonly every week, if not more often, with thankful hearts, with an awareness, Father, that you and you alone are the giver of all good things. And we have received so many. We have received good things, Father, that we may not even consider to be good. We've received trials. We've received tests. We've received things, Father, that cause us to grow and to, to become more godly. And all of these things, Father, you are doing in our lives because you love us and you care to bring us closer to who you are. And we, Father, are thankful for that opportunity. Your word is the lamp, Father, the thing on our feet that shows us the path and gives us a way to righteousness. Let us go into the word today expecting to see righteousness, knowing that you have prepared a message for us. Open our hearts to hear it. Open our minds to consider it. Give us courage to act upon it and to think about it. We know you will give us these things and we pray expectantly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've reached the end of Isaac's toldot or genealogy. And with that, we now come to chapter 36, which is, I guess to put it simply, it's an interlude. It's the thing between genealogies in the story of Genesis. The next toldot that we're going to study is the toldot of Jacob, specifically the story of his children. In all of we've studied so far in the book of Genesis, we've looked at eight of these toldots, and there's ten in the book of Genesis entirely. So we're at the ninth. That tells you right there that we're coming near the end of this book, at least in terms of genealogies, if not chapters. Let's remember, though, as we go to this ninth toldot today, let's remember that the story of Genesis isn't concerned with telling us interesting stories or in documenting the lives of interesting people. I mean, it is an interesting story and it does have interesting people in it, but that's not its purpose. Its purpose is to tell the story of man's creation, man's fall and God's response to the fall. And it sets up the other 65 books of the Bible, because in all that comes after Genesis, you see this story playing out to conclusion The response God gives to the fall of man is something we've been calling the seed promise, that there would be a seed. And Paul tells us in Galatians, this seed means Christ, a Messiah who would come into the world to save not just man, but all creation from the effects of the fall. So in Genesis, Moses is focused on telling us stories of those who are connected in some way or fashion to God's fulfillment of that promise. So the story of Genesis goes where the promise goes and it sets aside anything that is not directly related to that outcome. It makes sense then that we've been focused on men like Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob and his family. Those are the men who God chose to use in producing the seed, the promise. Israel, ultimately being that people from Jacob, Israel will be the people that bring forth the word of God, the prophets to deliver the word of God, ultimately the Messiah himself. All that God is doing for the sake of the world is done through and by the Jewish people as God has ordained. That's why Jesus says salvation is of the Jews in John chapter four. But while Abraham and Isaac have been our focus up till now. And through their lives, we focused on two children in each case, two out of Abraham, two out of Isaac. 
the question always revolves in the story around which of the two would carry forward the seed. And so with Abraham, it was Isaac, not Ishmael. With Isaac, we've learned it's to be Jacob and not Esau. But in both cases, both in the case of Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and Esau, in both cases, Moses devotes one chapter each to the two boys, to the two sons who are not going to be part of this seed promise story. And those chapters bring an end to the story of each of those rejected sons. So in chapter 25, we were studying the conclusion of the story of Ishmael. And now in this chapter today, chapter 36, we see Moses giving us the conclusion of the story of Esau. After these chapters are complete, neither Ishmael nor Esau appear again in Moses' narrative because they no longer matter to the story of the seed promise. But the people of these two, the people of Ishmael, that is the Arabs, and the people of Esau, that are the Edomites, these people do feature prominently in Israel's history. So the chapters have meaning and importance primarily for the nation of Israel to understand how their history is related to past events, how the the nation's experiences in the land relate. But it also gives us some interesting details about some of the people and some of the events of the nations that surround Israel. So chapter 36 today is the genealogy of Esau. Now, as we study scripture, we're likely to be tempted when we get to a chapter like this to skip over it, if give any time at all to it. Now, that's understandable because the chapter itself doesn't really contain a narrative. It's really more like a laundry list of names. But here you're going to see the difference between reading the Bible and studying the Bible. And there is reason, good reason to do both. And they are different. I think of them very simply in terms of the difference. I think of it very simply. Reading the Bible is when you're leaning back. Studying the Bible is when you're leaning forward. So if you're in an easy chair with, let's say, a a somewhat looser translation of the Bible, one that's more for reading, less for study, it paraphrases maybe a little more. That's good. That's a good kind of version to read from. But when you're ready to dive in and dig into the scripture, then you get back to something a little more honest with the text, a little more structured in terms of the translation. And you're going to be forward with a pen in your hand, maybe, or with a computer in front of you. And the intent then is to really dig in. Well, as you know already, this is not a place where I read you the scripture. This is a place where we study the scripture. So you're going to find with me, I think, that there are some interesting opportunities to learn from a chapter like this. It's well worth our time. We certainly don't want to skip over it. So we're going to study... Chapter 36, this chapter actually has two genealogies in it, and they're separated out into three parts. So the first genealogy runs from chapter 36, verses 1 through 8. This is the genealogy of Esau's wives and sons while Esau lived in the land of Canaan. The second genealogy begins in verse 9 and runs into the end of the chapter. That's the genealogy of Esau and others who lived in the land of Edom. After Esau left the land. So in that second section, there's two parts. There's one part of Esau himself and another part of another group of people who are not descended from Esau. The second group of people are those who were living in the land before Esau got there. So we'll sort this out as we move through the sections here. Let's begin in chapter 36, verse 1. And by the way, I get a dispensation for any names that I say incorrectly. And uh, the penalty for mocking me is you have to come up here and read the text in my place. Genesis 36, 1. Now, these are the records of the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, 
and Oholabamah, the daughter of Anah, and the granddaughter of Zibion, the Hivite. Also, Basamath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Neboeth, Neboeth. Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau. Basamath bore Reuel. And Oholabamah bore Jeush and Jalah and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods, which he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went to another land away from his brother Jacob. For their property had become too great for them to live together, and the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So I mentioned the genealogy begins with Esau and his wives and his sons in the land. Immediately as you look at this list, you're reminded of the fact that Esau made a choice to take wives from Canaanites, from a cursed people who lived in the land of Canaan. While Esau was wrong to take multiple wives, we got to remember that his brother took multiple wives also. So the condemnation that you might offer him for that sin is shared by his godly brother Jacob. Multiple marriages were wrong, but the chief sin of Esau was his actions or his lifestyle of unbelief. That all that he did reflected a failure to trust or believe in the promises of God, beginning with his despising of his birthright, the seed promise, going then into his unwillingness to honor God's commandment that he not take wives from the Canaanites, but rather to take wives from Canaanites. He was a godless man. And if you're one to notice details in the text, you may have noticed or recognized that Esau's three wives here have different names than the names that were given to them earlier when they were introduced in earlier chapters of Genesis. And then confusing matters all the more, the name changes of these women includes one woman changing her name to the name of one of the other women, which really confuses you if you don't keep them straight because you think that name change refers to the same person rather than seeing that the name switched. Originally, Esau had Basimath, Judith, and Mahalah. We've seen those names introduced earlier in the text. Now, those three women, in the same order, respectively, are being called Adah, Olehobamah, and Basimath. Notice Basimath is repeated, but now instead of being the first name, Basimath is the last name of the, of the women. There's been a switch. Adah means ornament. Her original name of Basimath meant perfumed. Oholabamah means the tent of the high place, which is a place of worship, of idols. Her original name had been Judith, which is praiseworthy. And then finally, Mahalath becomes Basimath. Now, after Esau had established his family in the land, after he's moved now out of Canaan and goes to the hill country of Seir, he settles in this place that later becomes Edom. The Bible says he leaves from Canaan because his property, his livestock, becomes so numerous that they begin to contend with the livestock of Jacob. But that reminds us of something that happened to Abraham, doesn't it? It was the same basic problem that drove Lot to separate from Abraham. When we studied that back in the earlier part of Genesis, we noted at the time that God insisted on that separation from Abraham to leave his family. And until he did that, until this separation between Abraham and Lot occurred, God had not given to Abraham the promise that he had mentioned he would give when Abraham first left Ur. He was waiting for Abraham to obey God's word before God responded with the blessing that he had offered. 
We saw a similar pattern with Jacob. Before Jacob received the fullness of the blessing, God waited until he had obeyed and come back to the place that he had promised to return to. And now you see God separating the two families in this similar fashion. So Jacob reenters the land. And you remember when he did that, he, he met Esau on the way and Esau had all that property even then. And now you see that that's grown to the point that they have to separate. It is not merely happenstance or chance or luck that Esau chooses to move outside the land that's been promised to Jacob. Most of Jacob's sons are born outside the land, but God brings them all into the land. All of Esau's sons are born in the land, but God moves them all out of the land. For Esau, every piece of land was equally possibly valuable to him. Didn't matter if it was Canaan, didn't matter if it was Seir, he's just looking for a good place to live. For God's people, the place that mattered was the one God had assigned and God had selected because in faith they trusted in God's promise that this was the place for them. Moses reminds us here that the inheritance and the destinies of men of faith and men of the world have nothing in common. There's no common ground, in other words. God told Abraham something very similar concerning Ishmael. Do you remember when Isaac and Ishmael were still both living in the home together before they separated? God says this in Genesis 21:10. Sarah speaks first to her husband. She says to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. Now that matter, we're told, distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So God separated Ishmael and Isaac, because there would be nothing in common. And likewise, God has separated Jacob and Esau. If the inheritance that Jacob will receive is not yet on the earth, it's not going to be his until a future kingdom in a future eternal realm, then if that's the real inheritance of Jacob, what difference does it make if they happen to live in the same physical proximity today in the meantime? Why does God insist that they separate physically now? Well, the answer is that Canaan is always in Scripture a picture of the promised land, of the undelivered promise, and God pushes anyone who is not of Israel out of Israel so that that picture is maintained. So that we see Israel going in and everyone else who is not of Israel, who is not of the people of God, being sent out. They are separated spiritually, one a believer, one not. They will be separated in eternity, one with the Lord, one with those who are not of the Lord. And now they are being separated physically to picture their spiritual separation. We've seen this now a lot. In the book of Genesis, it's a common refrain. God makes distinctions between his children and the unredeemed world. But false teachers and ungodly men, men of our day today, people who would stand up in a pulpit in some cases and teach, they will tell you in some cases that this distinction that you see evidenced here in Scripture is going to be first and foremost seen in the area of wealth. They see that God treats the world differently than he treats believers. They appreciate that God views these two worlds from different points of view. They have different eternal destinies, but they trivialize the difference by making it nothing more than a difference in wealth. And so they will lie and they will tell you that God wants believers to be wealthy 
And he will not grant wealth to those who are not of faith. That if you don't have wealth, it means you don't have enough faith, something of that sort. They point to the way God blesses believers as proof of their false teaching. They talk about Abraham or they talk about Solomon or they talk about even Jacob. And then they will tell you, if you aren't wealthy, it means God is not pleased with you or you are not a believer or you are not a man or woman of of enough faith. You know the things I'm talking about, I'm sure. It's it's out there, unfortunately. But in this story, the story of, of what we're watching here between Esau and Jacob and even back to Isaac and Ishmael, these stories give us perfect examples that disprove This kind of false teaching, because if you notice, both Ishmael and now Esau are wealthy. They're as wealthy as their kindred in the form of Isaac or Jacob. They have plenty of wealth. In fact, in Genesis 21, 13, which I just read a minute ago, God promised to make a nation of Ishmael after he sends Ishmael away from Abraham's home. He says, I will make him a great nation because I promised you to do that. Even though Abraham did the wrong thing in bringing Ishmael into the world through Hagar, God says, nonetheless, I promised your descendants they will have a nation. And so I will do that, even for Ishmael. So what the story reinforces is God blesses both believers and unbelievers with some degree of provision as he chooses to suit his purpose. Many unbelievers are wealthy. I hope that's not shocking news to anyone in here. Many unbelievers are very wealthy. Some believers are very wealthy. There are many unbelievers who are poor. And there are quite a few believers who are living on the edge of poverty. In fact, most wealthy people are probably not believers. And most believers are probably not very wealthy. Based on what I see God doing and what he says in scripture. But remember that while some may be rich in earthly terms, particularly among the unbelievers... They will be destitute in eternity. Their eternity is spent in the lake of fire. While we, on the other hand, may entertain some sinful desires to have more of what this world offers, you've got to remember that you will have an inheritance in heaven beyond anything you can find or possess here on earth. God's ultimate justice, if you will, in terms of what we receive, won't be found in this world, and we're not supposed to make this the place where justice appears. We're not supposed to make that our goal. And when you look at a story like Esau and Jacob and you realize they were both being blessed materially, but at the same time, God was clearly indicating who had a future in the promised land and who didn't, who had the eternal blessing and who didn't. And that's the focus we're supposed to take as well. That's the thing we're supposed to remember as well. So Esau moves 80 to 100 miles south, southeast into a place called Seir. Originally, when he came there, he probably arrived peacefully. He just settled into the land, into some open space. But inevitably, disputes would have arisen with the people living in the land. And then Esau had to contend with them, and he had to destroy the inhabitants of Seir by force. And we'll study some of that in a few minutes through some of the later parts of the genealogy. Deuteronomy 2 gives us the summary of that. Deuteronomy 2.12. The Horites formerly lived in Seir. But the sons of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed from before them and settled in their place, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. So God ensures that Esau finds a home in Edom, just as he ensures Jacob finds a home in Canaan. And then throughout the rest of Scripture, from this point forward, Edom becomes synonymous with evil, ungodly 
sinful people. Now, it's not the only place where you find people like that, but it becomes synonymous with it. Like we say Sodom and Gomorrah as a way of saying a very depraved place. This is a way of saying a very ungodly place, Edom. So just as Canaan becomes a picture of the promised land, Edom becomes a picture of hell or of judgment, the place in which unbelievers reside. Even more importantly to the story of Israel, though, Edom becomes a tormentor, an antagonist for Israel. The people of Israel often fight the Edomites. And in the time of Jesus, the family of Herod, the kings who were ruling over and terrorizing the Jews, the the Herod that wanted to kill all the sons to try to stop Jesus, that family, they are Edomites. Idomeans, technically, but that's a branch of the Edomites. So God promises to Israel one day they will turn the tables on this arch enemy of Edom, that the Messiah will fight for Israel and will crush Edom forever. The two nations, Israel and Edom, are forever set apart, set opposed to one another as pictures, as poster children, if you will, one of God's people and one of the enemy's people. And in the same way that we know Scripture tells us, the enemy is always contending against God by attacking God's people. So do the Edomites fulfill that role in the history of Israel until such time as they are crushed forever. Numbers 24, Moses writes this in Numbers 24:15. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and who knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. And then this is what the oracle says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth, Edom, shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant from the city. That's referencing Christ, the coming Messiah, the scepter, the star that comes forth from Jacob, who will crush Israel's enemies, including Edom. So Esau's residence in Seir and all the people who have this temporary life in Edom, they become a picture of the unbelieving people of the world and of the enemies of God's people. What's interesting is look where they're settling. If you have a map in your Bible, it may show you this, but Edom is present day southern Jordan. It's on the border of of Israel today. So God permitted these people, the Edomites, to live right next door to Israel. Not in Israel, that's important, not in Canaan, but, but yet right next door. And they then become the cranky, annoying next-door neighbor that you wish didn't have to live in the house right next to yours. And in spiritual terms, they become this antagonist for Israel and then later allows God to use them as the people group Israel can conquer when God wants to show his mighty power in Israel. One day, though, the Lord has his final victory. They become the target group. The destruction of Edom is, a, is associated with the return of Christ. If you've done the Revelation study that I have available online, or if you were part of the small group that's doing it, you'll learn that at the point Christ returns at his second coming, the location of his second coming, the first place he comes down to when he comes to earth is in the place of Edom. And here's what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 63.1. And Isaiah's writing this, from the perspective of standing on the wall of Jerusalem, looking at Edom. So Isaiah is in Jerusalem. He's looking at Edom 
And from that perspective, here's what he writes. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And then this person answers Isaiah and says, it is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And then Isaiah asks him a question. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? And then this one answers Isaiah. I have trodden the wine trough alone and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. This is part of a longer teaching, as you might expect, concerning the nature of the events of the second coming of Christ. But in this moment, Jesus has returned and defeated part of the army of the Antichrist in this place called Edom or Batsra. And he has done it as part of his second coming. And this is in keeping with the promises God has made in the Old Testament that Edom, the Edomites and all that they represent would be destroyed by the coming of the Messiah. Israel has always understood this, even if they don't understand who Jesus is, even if they haven't put all the pieces together. They have understood God's promise that Edom represented the enemies of Israel and would be destroyed along with the rest as they contemplate. The suffering of Israel in Babylon during their captivity in Babylon. The psalmist writes this Psalm 137 by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion upon the willows in the midst of it. We hung our harps for there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. And then the psalmist ends with this. He says, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. And you notice they're in Babylon. So the psalmist is lamenting the state of Israel in Babylon. But when he says it's time for God to bring revenge against Israel's enemies, do you notice who he cites? He says Edom. Edom had nothing to do with Babylon taking Israel captive. And he knows that. What the psalmist is saying is the word Edom is the poster child for Israel's enemies. And in this case, the enemy was Babylon. But in the same idea, he says, oh, God, keep your promise against Edom, against Israel's enemies whoever they may be, and destroy them, and then, of course, specifically destroy Babylon. So to move forward in the chapter, let's read through the list of sons, of the sons of Esau who were born to him while he's in the land. And let's note a few interesting names along the way if we, if we have a couple minutes. First ten. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Adah. Ruel, the son of Esau's wife, Basemath. The sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Esau's son, Eliphaz, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Adah. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath and Zerah, Shammah and Mizah. These were the sons of Esau's wife, Bezamath. These were the sons of Esau's wife, Olabamah, the daughter of Anah and the granddaughter of Zebion. She bore to Esau 
Jeush and Jalam and Korah. Again, this is the family of Esau that was born to him while he was still in Canaan. A couple of things to note, and then we can move on. One of Esau's sons here is Eliphaz, and his son is Taman. Now, does that ring any bells? Well, you may remember Taman was the father of the Temanites. And in Job's book, one of his counselors is a man called Eliphaz the Temanite. So it's likely that this Temanite is the descendant of Eliphaz to Teman to another son down the road who took on the name Eliphaz again, Eliphaz the Temanite. And we know the story of Job happens historically somewhere around this same point in history, around the time of Jacob and about the time of Esau. And we also know it takes place in the land of Seir. So it's likely that the counselor that you see in the story of Job is one of the near descendants. He may even be this very same Eliphaz that we're seeing described here in Esau's genealogy. Isn't it interesting that his counselors, who, as you probably know, are seen in that story for universally having bad advice, ungodly counseling advice. Look where they come from. The line of Esau. A quick reminder, be careful where you go for your counsel and don't go to the world. Another of Esau's descendants is Amalek. He is the father of the Amalekites who settled in Sinai eventually and even into southern Israel in the Negev desert. They're notable because the Amalekites are the first people in history to attack the nation of Israel. They later defeated Israel for a time and ruled over the nation of Israel in the time of Judges. Later, though, Saul defeats them. David attacks them again. And finally, in the rule of Hezekiah, they are extinguished. They are done away with entirely. So this completes the list of Esau's descendants. Altogether, if you counted them up, there's 13 tribes. Now, that's interesting because Jacob will also have 13 tribes when you count the two sons of Joseph, who we'll get to, of course. Now we have a, a list here, a kind of marathon list to end the chapter. And we're going to break it into a couple of sections, but none of these take long. We're almost done. In verses 15 through 19, we have the chiefs or the tribal leaders, if you will, of the various families of Esau after they leave the land and settle in Seir. So 15 through 19. These are the chiefs of the son of Esau, the son of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, are chief Taman, chief Omar, chief Zepho, and chief Kenaz, chief Korah, chief Gatam, chief Amalek. These are the chiefs descended from Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Raul, Esau's son. Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, Chief Misah. These are the chiefs descended from Rule in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basemath. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Olabamah, Chief Jerush, Chief Jalam, Chief Korah. These are the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Olabamah, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. So here we're looking at chiefs. Not kings, chiefs. The difference is that the nation of Edom is not united under a single leader, but the family branches have a clan leader or a chief. Think of it as the patriarch. And then the list comes to an end. These are the chiefs that end the list of Esau. Now, in verse 20, we get to a new group of people. This is where I said we have two genealogies in this chapter. This is the second one. This is not of Esau. This is not of the line of Esau. This is of a totally different group of people. These are people who lived in the land, the Horites, who were already in the land before Esau even showed up. These are people that Esau eventually conquered and intermarried with. 
But initially, when Esau lived in the land, they were living side by side. And so let's get to them. We're going to read from them in verse 20 all the way until verse 30. These are the sons of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan and Shobal and Zibion and Anah and Dishon and Izer and Dishon. These are the chiefs descended from Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Horai and Hemam and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Manahath and Ebal, Shaphononam. These are the sons of Zibion, Ayah. And Anna, he is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness when he was pasturing the donkeys of his father, Zibion. These are the children of Anna, Dishan and Olabamaha, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishan, Hemda, Eshvan, Ithran and Cheran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan and Zahavan and Akan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz and Aran. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites. Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibion, and Chief Anna. Chief Dishan, Chief Izer, Chief Dishan. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites according to their various chiefs in the land of Seir. Now we're just going to pause here for a minute. Not much to say except Horite means cave dweller. So these are people who were in the land indigenously living in caves which made convenient homes. But that also tells us they hadn't established strong cities with walls and all the rest. So they weren't well positioned to defend themselves from an invader. And Esau became that invader. As they came into the land and they conquered the uh, Horites and intermarried with them, the Edomites became the dominant people. And that's why the land became known as Edom, not Horiteville or something else. So that's where the genealogy now goes forward from that point in verse 31. But notice we're no longer talking about chiefs. Now we're talking about kings. And with the word king comes the implication of a unified nation of people under a single ruler. And that's the sign to us that this is the stage at which in history that the nation of Edom had formed, that the Edomites had conquered the Horites. Look in verse 31. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Now, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinhabah. Then Bela died, and Joab, the son of Zerah of Batsra, became king in his place. Then Joab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites became king in his place. Then Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the field of Moab, became king in his place, and the name of his city was Avith. Then Hadad died, and Samlah of Meshrachav became king in his place. Then Samlah died, and Shaul of Rehoboth, on the Euphrates River, became king in his place. Then Shaul died, and Baal Ahanan, the son of Achbor, became king in his place. Then Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, died, and Hadar became king in his place, and the name of his city was Paul. And his wife's name was Wamehetabel, the daughter of Metred, daughter of Mezahab. Now these are the names of the chiefs descended from Esau according to their families and their localities by their names. Chief Timnah, Chief Alvah, Chief Jetheth, Chief Olahabama, Chief Allah, Chief Pinon, Chief Kanaz, Chief Taman, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, Chief Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of the Edomites, according to their inhabitants in the land of their possession. These last verses become the closing record. You notice at the end it repeats chiefs again. That's the closing record to finish the discussion of Esau, to remind us of how Esau's family moved 
through chiefs to kings. It's not there in chronological order. It's stuck on at the end. It's interesting that the kings here don't come from a single family dynasty like in Egypt. The kings move around between different groups in the family and with them. So does the capital city. That's why Edom doesn't have a capital city historically, because it's moved with king to king. It's also clear when you look at the names in this list that these people, these Canaanite people have the God Baal, or which is really just, I think, Satan in another form as their primary influence. There are two kings whose name has Baal in the name. And then of the 81 names mentioned in this list, only two of them have the name of God in the name. You also notice that some of these people came from Euphrates from the east. And we have that east west dichotomy again, where the east is Edom to the west, of course, is Israel. And east being a picture of the unbelieving world, west being a picture of the believing world. All of these things are brought into alignment. Also, did you notice that Moses says something very fascinating here? He says, here are the kings of Edom. Oh, and by the way, Edom had kings even before Israel. Well, think about when this is being written. Moses is wandering during the 40 years in the desert when he writes this. This is long before Saul. This is long before Israel demands a king. And here's, here's Moses saying, this is before we got kings. Now, how does he know they're going to get kings? Well, the first and easy answer is it's revealed to him by the Spirit. But I think it's more tangible than even that, not to discount that, but to say, I think we have better reason than just assuming God gave it to him supernaturally. God has already promised Abraham this would happen. You would have nations come from you. And then God promised Jacob specifically, you would have kings come forth from you. So there's already been a spoken promise from God. What you see Moses saying here is, I believe that promise. We know God will be faithful to bring kings from us. But the nation of Edom had them first. Here's another perfect reference to remember that God will sometimes give the blessings we seek to the unbelieving world in a temporal way, in an earthly way. But he reserves the greater blessing for the believer. But it's the eternal realm in which that blessing is, is reserved or waiting for us. With that, we conclude. There's probably more we could say, but at this point, this chapter has met its purpose in the course of our study. Next week. We begin the study of Jacob's two sons, and primarily that's a study of the son of Joseph. It's got to be one of the most famous and most powerful stories recorded in all Scripture. Many people tell me it's their favorite story of Scripture, particularly out of the Old Testament. In the way we're going to study Joseph, beyond obviously studying the narrative, we're going to be taking time along the path to take note of the ways in which God uses Joseph's life to picture Christ. And he is one of the, in my opinion, one of the clearest pictures of Christ in all the Bible, a man of supreme patience and trust in the Lord. And in the course of his story, you're also going to get a wonderful additional example of God's sovereignty, which is another theme of the book of Genesis, because you're going to watch God in his unchangeable purpose and in his sovereign wisdom and power, keeping all his promises as he made them to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and yet do much of that through the sin of men. Letting people's own sinful desires drive his plan forward. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, that you gave us uh, patience and, and attentiveness to the story of, of Esau. I thank you that you give us that opportunity every week, Father, to, to dive in and study your, your scriptures and to understand it in depth. Thank you for pictures like the picture of Edom. That we can make sense, Father, of the world in some level. The world that does not know you and opposes us and opposes you. And while we strive in this time of opportunity to bring them to the saving knowledge that you've granted to us, nevertheless, we also understand 
that the purposes you have in allowing them, the unbelieving world, to exist will ultimately come to the proper conclusion that you will use them to your glory, that things will come about exactly as you've planned. And so we can take solace, Father, in the fact that even though we have trials and tribulations brought upon us by those who oppose you, that we know, Father, it's according to your will. Let us go out from here, Father, renewed in our desire to reach others and to speak the truth in this time of Christmas and to perhaps persuade some as you give us opportunity. And we ask to come back with others if you give us that opportunity and let us continue in our study next week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.